Hello, it's me again, and last week we talked from Romans chapter 5 about Paul's argument that two men changed the face of the world, Adam and Christ, and he did a past, present and future thing, what we were before we met Christ, when we were in Adam as it were, what we are now, we're living with him and what we will be in the future and he ended almost in 520 with this assertion where sin increased grace increased even more no matter how much we sin there's always more grace more forgiveness available to us and in doing that Paul sets us up beautifully as we move into chapter 6 for another little heckle from our interlocutor, the uh, the person in the crowd imaginary um, shouting out comments and questions. And the interlo- interlocutor's question, that's easy for me to say, um, at the start of chapter 6 is this, right? If God enjoys giving grace, showing grace, and if the more we sin, the more grace he can give, surely the best thing to do would be to do God a favour and sin as much as we possibly can, and therefore provide him with loads and loads of opportunity to show grace. In other words, a good Christian is one who sins as much as possible because that then allows God's grace to flow even more through the world. Now, you may think uh, this is a daft idea and anyone who would say this, you know, really doesn't get it. Um, You may think it's a bit like some of those caricatures uh, that people have of Christians who sin all week and with great joy and abandon go to confession on Saturday, mass on Sunday and then come out and start it all over again. Actually, there have been people who have taught this doctrine. The interlocutor is not as daft as we may th- think. And perhaps the most famous one was Rasputin, the Russian monk, made famous for us, of course, by Boniem in the disco era. Uh, But Rasputin taught exactly this, uh, and he lived it out too. So what's Paul got to say to the interlocutor? Well, you've guessed it, of course, verse 2, Meganoito, no way. And he's going to argue against this point of view. And his argument is simple. You can't go on sinning because you're dead to sin. That's the the bottom line argument here. He's going to argue the point here. And next time in the second half of chapter 6, he's going to argue it in a slightly different way. But then... In chapter 7, he's going to deal with the reality of what that means. And we're going to discover, thank goodness, that it's nowhere near as simple in chapter 7 
as Paul makes it out to be in chapter 6. And I think it's important we take that little look forward because some of the stuff that we're going to be saying for the next two weeks um, will probably evoke in you the emotion oh yeah like like it's that simple kind of thing um but in chapter seven paul is going to say of course it's not that simple and share some of his own struggles so uh, we, we need to take a slightly longer view here if we're not to lose reality and uh, fly off to another planet so in in um, one of the things I found really helpful was a friend who used to talk about the tension between the real and the true. Uh, there are things which as Christians we believe are true, but they don't at the moment as yet tie in with what is real in our experience. And we're actually called to live within that tension there are all sorts of things about the christian life which yes we acknowledge them as true um, but the reality doesn't quite match up so for example i did a seminar once at spring harvest where i was asked to look at all those anything you ask passages in the gospels you know again and again jesus says you know just ask and it's done you know throwing mountains into the sea or or whatever now if you've ever had a prayer not answered positively you'll know that however true that may be it isn't real in our experience so that's where we're going uh today and the next two weeks and uh my hope is that we will find both the truth in chapter 6 and the reality in chapter 7 will we'll actually in different ways bring real encouragement to us. So let's start with that simple thesis. If we're in Christ, we've died and we've risen again to new life. So when you died you became dead to sin so how can we possibly keep on doing it i love the uh, illustration of i heard of a uh, a serious alcoholic he he just couldn't fight that addiction he could never resist temptation and finally drunk himself to death and his dead body is lying there in the gutter and you decide to wave over him a bottle of scotch and see how he reacts to that. And the answer, of course, is he doesn't. He's died. Uh, and that, I think, is a picture of what Paul is trying to say here, although they probably didn't have scotch in those days. You want a visual aid of that, says Paul? Well, just look at your baptism. Your baptism is what that is all about. It isn't just an illustration. It's a, it's a spiritual reality which explains this. Now, this is the only time that Paul is going to talk about baptism in Romans. But even though it's only in a couple of verses, he does make a really big and important argument out of it. So we do need to have a little look at it. 
When you were baptised, says Paul, you were buried with Christ, just as Christ was put in that suit, in that tomb, you were, uh, as it were, buried at sea. But you rose again, just as Christ did, to a new life, to a different life, just as he did when he emerged from that tomb sometime during the night before Easter. Now, if we're going to get this argument, of course, we do need to free ourselves from most of the in images of baptism that we have probably got. And particularly, um, I speak here to any Anglicans who may have wandered onto this uh, site by mistake. Uh, because we, I think, have, have got some things seriously wrong here. So if when you hear the word baptism, you immediately think babies, fonts, sprinkles of water, godparents, silly hats, all the rest of it, you do need to forget all that. Now I'm not arguing, you can have this in brackets, I'm not arguing that the New Testament forbids infant baptism. Uh, I am an Anglican myself at the end of the day. And I think the theological pointers are towards infant baptism, even though there's no hard evidence one way or the other. Um, I'm not really going to get into that here, but lest you think that I'm uh, not an infant baptism fan, that, that's not the case. But we must understand, I think, that in Paul's day, baptism was first and foremost done to adult converts to Christ and, I would argue again in brackets, to their families, that it involved some kind of submersion underwater and uh, hopefully coming back up again. Um, if, if that's not the case, the symbolism used here just doesn't work. Jesus was died, was buried in the tomb and came out again to new life. So when you were baptised as a new Christian and your baptism incidentally would have come after you had repented of sin, believed in Jesus and just before you were prayed for to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Christian initiation, I believe, is a four-part cluster of these ingredients. Repent, believe, be baptised, receive the Holy Spirit. And what the Church of England has done is that it has separated baptism from the other three, um, other than notionally in the liturgical words spoken. Uh, in particular, we hand baptism out with no questions asked about the genuineness of repentance or belief. Uh, and we look generally for no fruit being shown in the lives of people who come or bring babies for baptism. Uh, the liturgy, of course, uh, and you would know that I would think this, the liturgy says all the right things, all that good theology is there, it just isn't matched up in pastoral practice. You can tell 
when someone has come alive in Christ. You just can, you know it, you can see it on their face, you can see it in their lifestyle, you can hear it in their conversation, you know. And most baptisms I've been involved in over the years, there's been no evidence whatsoever of that. And of course the Anglican approach is to say, well, you know, we must just dish out the sacraments and leave that up to God. Uh, that's a fudge, in my opinion. The early church wanted evidence of the genuineness of conversion. Um, so now I'm retired and haven't got to do any more baptisms, it's okay for me to become uh, really hardline, and that's fine. Anyway, leaving all that aside, can you see the argument? Can you see what he's saying? Your baptism means that you died, died to your old life and rose again to a new life just as Jesus did. So how can you possibly continue in sin once you have died to it? Now, as I said, Paul's going to develop that argument, say a bit more about it next week. Um, but he goes on a little detour here. By the way, while we're talking about baptism, it isn't just about the going under the water. It is, uh, thankfully, about coming up out the other side. And again, there's, there's a bit of a past, present, future thing. You were alive to sin and dead to Christ. You did what sin told you to do. You didn't do what Christ wanted of you. But now you've died. And just as once you've died, death has no more power over you, so sin doesn't either. Uh, many people live this life in their fear, in, in a great fear of death. That's why we don't talk about it. That's why we say passed away and other euphemisms instead of just saying died. People are terrified of it. But I can promise you this. Once you have died, you won't need to worry about dying anymore. That's over. You're not going to ever have to die again. But just as Jesus came back to a new and a different life, so have we. And one day in the future, we will live that life in all its fullness. So that's the simple argument of what he's saying in baptism. You died to sin, so therefore you don't have to do it anymore. Like that whiskey on the dead alcoholic, it has no power over you. Well, you're probably thinking, well, whoopee-doo, uh, that's wonderful. It's all automatic. Um, if I've been baptised... And if it was a genuine baptism preceded by repentance and belief and was followed up by the gift of the Holy Spirit, then sin has got no power over me anymore. That is fantastic. I'm perfect. I don't sin anymore. Well, says Paul, it's not quite so simple as that because you have a responsibility too. And the argument develops in verse 11 and onwards because there are two things that we have to do to make this work. The first is this, count yourselves dead 
to sin. That's something we do with our minds. You've got to believe this stuff. Now, the word count is a, a, a word from the world of finance, uh, about which I know absolutely nothing, but it's basically about you add up the columns, you do the maths, and if the figures show that you are healthily in the black, then live like that. Uh, you know, spend a little, have some fun. That's fine. It, it's an evidence-based approach. Work it out. This is true. This is what your baptism means. That's what you believe in your mind, what, what you uh, live out based on that calculation that this is true. But then there's something else to do, and this time with your body, don't let sin take back its reign. Now, when we sin, we, we can, of course, sin in our minds, but a lot of the time we sin with our bodies and bits of our bodies. Our tongues speak evil. Our tongues gossip. Our tongues tell lies. Our hands steal. Our hands at times get violent. Our stomachs can control us and what we consume. Our eyes can see and lust and covet. And so Paul says, don't offer your body back to sin. You don't have to. It no longer has authority over you. There is no inevitability about sin. An old preacher used to tell the story of his headmaster at school, who was uh, a bit of a tyrant, and this uh, lad was uh, a bit of a tearaway, I think. And so every now and then he was called into the headmaster's office to get the cane. This, of course, was in the good old days when schools were run properly. Um, and anyway, he uh, left school eventually and got a job and got married. But he happened at some point just to go back to visit that school. And the headmaster wanted to see him as good headmasters do. Uh, and as he walked into that office, he realised that he was both filled with a great sense of terror. Is this bloke going to give me six of the best uh, again? But also with the realisation that he didn't have to feel like that. In the past, this man had authority over him. Now, he didn't. He was no longer a schoolboy in that school. He was a different person than that. Uh, slightly naughty boy of, of uh, 10 or 15 years earlier. Treat sin like that. It will try and bluff you. It will try and tell you that you have no choice but to give in to those temptations. And Paul says, you don't have to do that. You died. Remember, you rose again. You're a new person. Now, next week, he's going to illustrate that very point using a different picture before he goes on in chapter seven to actually get real and acknowledge that maybe in real life it's not quite as simple as that. So see you next week.